so as we get started this morning, I have to ask a little survey question. Do you remember, and just show me your hand, do you remember where you were in 1987? 1987. Some of you are like, I was not born yet, sir. Um, some of you are like, uh, yeah. So um, 1987. I was a student at Howard Payne University, and as a preacher student, I was ministerial, and me and another friend of mine named Paul, we had this crazy idea. We were living in Brownwood, Texas, and he invited me to go with him. We ended up taking my Volkswagen for some reason at a 71 Beetle. Anybody remember Volkswagen Beetles back in the day? Have you ever noticed in Volkswagens, they have a certain smell? Have you ever noticed that? I'm pretty sure it's carbon monoxide or related. But uh, I, I had the typical Volkswagen with the rusty undercarriage, and I had uh, a coat hanger holding my battery in. So it is, as long as that coat hanger held on, we were good. So we were going to take my bug and drive from Brownwood to Dallas Reunion Arena, where Paul had said, we've got to go to this event that's happening. It's called the Texas Baptist Youth Evangelism Conference. How's that for a name for branding? The Texas Baptist Youth Evangelism Conference. He said, there's going to be 18,000 youth, 18,000 students, they're hearing the gospel, and I was like, I'm in, let's go. And so uh, we, we loaded up in my car, we went, and I stayed at a friend's church, he, he had such a small house, he couldn't put us up, but he did put us up in his church, so we actually slept in the worship center on the pews. Man, I'm telling you, it's typical college stuff, right? And so we had a blast, and the first night was amazing. I think David Meese was leading worship, anybody remember David Meese? Two people. Okay, all right. All right, here we go. So, 1987, David Meese leading worship, 18,000 students at Dallas Reunion Arena. Remember when Dallas Reunion Arena was a thing? I think it held 20,000, and the, the, the stage was set up where there was just this big gap behind. So, it was basically a sold-out event. It was amazing. Friday night was awesome. We went, stayed at that church. That was an experience. A little creepy being in church at night. I'm just saying felt like uh, the ghost of Mr. Chicken in that moment, just a little bit, and everybody over 60 just got that one. Okay, here we go. I'm really doing some period stuff here. I'm working on it. So, so we spent the night in the church. We got the next day, and they were going to have this big thing until noon, Then you're dismissed. You can leave and go back home. So we show up, and I was also a volunteer prayer guy. So like whenever they did anything at the altar, uh, we would run down there with our little badges on, and we would just receive students. And it was great. We're getting to minister to students, pray with students. It was really cool. Loved it. And uh, the last session, the big keynote speaker that was supposed to come in, he was a big name, big draw kind of thing, and something happened where he was delayed and he couldn't make it. And they only found out 15 minutes before he was supposed to go on. So I see us frantic scrambling around the backstage area because I'm down there by the stage, and I see this guy put on a microphone quickly, grab a Bible. I don't even know if it was his. And he's thumbing through it and he's shaking. And I'm like, ooh, what's going on here? I didn't know the story at the moment, but I knew something was up. And this, this guy jumps up on the platform and he gets down on, his, on one knee and he prays. And he says, Lord, I didn't know I was going to be doing this today because I'm not the featured speaker. And I found out later, this guy, by the way, his name is Erwin McManus. 
And Irwin was part of the Dallas Baptist Association at that time. This is before he moved to Los Angeles, before he started Mosaic Church, which has become a massively influential church, especially on the West Coast. But they thrive in the arts and actually have gotten into the fashion world. I mean, it's incredible what God's doing, coloring way outside the lines. But young Erwin McManus had a little church in downtown Dallas where they were just reaching out to the broken, the homeless, the poor. And here he got tagged within the moment, no sermon, nothing prepared, and said, oh, by the way, you're now the keynote speaker to 18,000 students. And you know what he did? He jumped up on that stage, dropped to a knee, and he prayed. And he surrendered himself to God. And I knew, now that I knew what kind of what was going on, I was like, whoa, this will be interesting. No notes, a borrowed Bible, 18,000 expectant students, and probably 2,000 disappointed youth ministers who thought some big name was going to be there. And here's Irwin standing up to preach. He opened his Bible, and he brought one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard. And it changed, ooh, I get emotional thinking about it. <sighs> Keep doing this. It changed the trajectory of my life. It left such an imprint on me. Because it was a call to hope. Now, I'm not talking wishful thinking here, because that's what most people think when they think of hope. I wish, I hope this works out. I hope. You know, God comes through for me. Bible hope actually has more to do with expectation than anything else. It's actually a statement of faith. So let me share something from R.C. Sproul. We're talking about how this idea of hope has a name. We're in our series called Overflow. And we're talking about now, what do you need to be filled with so that you can overflow when you're outside of these walls and even inside these walls? And hope is what we're going to talk about today. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, who just passed away a couple of years ago. He says this, Hope is called the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19 because it gives stability to the Christian life. That's what an anchor does. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty. Someone say certainty out loud. Certainty. I'm sure. I'm certain of the promises of the future that God has made. That's what hope does, not wishful thinking. So I have Hebrews 6, 19. You'll see it on the screen. Hope is an anchor for the soul. It says this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Our forerunner Jesus, that means he has gone before us and now made a way where there was no way, and now we can follow in behind him in his steps. And we, as Sheldon wrote a book about many years ago, in his steps, and we can follow in and find our way into the very presence of God. There's references to the holy of holies, the most holy place where God dwelt. And it says this, listen to this. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered our behalf, he has become a high priest forever. He is our great high priest, who is, by the way, very approachable. Listen to this. The, the definition for Koine Greek, which is the original language of the Bible, is elpizo, is what, what the word is, and it literally means this. And so anywhere you see in the New Testament, you can replace it with this definition. Instead of thinking wishful, now faith is the assurance of things wished for, hoped for, 
Now look what it it is. Joyful, confident expectation of a desired good. Joyful, why? Because I expect it to happen. Confident, why? Because I know it's going to happen. And expectation, I expect it. I assume it's going to come to pass. What God says is true. What he starts, he finishes. And if he declares something, he watches over his word to perform it. It will not return void. Listen to this. Joyful, confident expectation of a desired good. That's real hope. That's different than wishful thinking. And listen to this. If you replace the word in Hebrews 6.19, we have this expectation. Or just play, do the whole definition. We have this joyful, confident expectation as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. In order to overflow, you have to be full. Because the nature of fullness is overflow. But what are you full of? Or I'll ask another question as we get started, because we're going to talk about something today that it may be a little different. What do you smell like? (laughs) Somebody did a check. I saw you. (laughs) You weren't just dabbing. I mean, you were like checking. What do you smell like? My granny smelled like a perfume unlike any I'd ever smelled before. And apparently it was popular because it stayed in production my entire life. Because she had it my entire life. Unless she bought gallons of it and had it stored somewhere. But my grandmother could be two rooms away and you knew she was coming. Because there was an aroma. And the aroma would beat her into the room. So granny, now listen, it was pungent and it did burn the nose just a little bit if you stayed too close in proximity. But here's the deal. I came to love that smell. It became a familiar smell because that was granny. And hopefully it meant she's going to cook some good food because she could cook. But what do you smell like? What is the aroma that is on your life? And, and, And what does it say about you? And And, you know, you could ask people, what do I smell like? And they look at you like, you're really weird. Another way to say it is, who am I? And what happens when I show up in a given place? So we'll talk about that in a minute. And you'll see where we're going. But I want to take us back a little bit in time. Most of you know I preach mostly out of the New Testament. I'm a New Covenant kind of guy. But some of the stories, some of the accounts in the Old Testament are phenomenal for speaking to our hearts, the whole counsel of the Word. So in the book of Daniel, a familiar book to many, Daniel chapter 1, I'm just going to move very quickly through this because we're going to do a setup because we're going to look at God's setup for hopes come back, because some of you need your hope restored. Some of you need your joyful, confident expectation restored. Can I get an amen? Daniel 1, listen to this. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon was a world power at the time. Came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So there's a war And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes, and look what he does, verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the article. Wait a minute. The Lord delivered? Whoa, whoa, okay, wait a minute. King of Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, God's chosen people, and the Lord delivered him into Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king's hand. Do you ever wonder about God's plan? You ever heard this? God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Here's the truth. He does. A big picture. Small picture, it may be it take a lot of detours to get there. Look what happens. This is wild. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Remember, the articles that were in the temple of God in the most holy place were actually the articles and artifacts that were in the Ark of the Covenant. They represented the identity of the people of Israel. These are the most precious national treasures that they had. And look what happens. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. He took the artifacts that were represented our one true God and took them to his own temple of, of idols. So do you see a problem here? Do you see this is devastating? 586 BC, the captivity of Babylon, they were in captivity some 70 years under rule. Many taken away from Israel, from Jerusalem, up to Babylon to serve as slaves or to live out their lives in a whole nother culture when they knew in their heart of hearts, we're the sons and daughters of God. We're king's kids. We're his chosen people. And here they are, carted off. Look what happens, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service to wait on him hand and foot, to be around him. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. You'll recognize the first name. Daniel, you may not recognize the other three just yet. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. Well, yeah, it's easy to say, right? Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, I started off with a story about Erwin McManus. The passage of Scripture that he preached that so shifted the trajectory of my life was this passage. And we're going to talk about these three boys, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, and why it's important to smell right. And it's not just because of right guard. Come on, somebody. Or acts. So here it is. Listen to this. Verse 17. We're going to skip a little bit. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, remember, three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, we pick it up. And I titled this section, When the Fires of Life Heat Up. 
Because some of you right now today, and I thought about you, and I prayed about you, and for you, there are many sitting in here that if we were to have some kind of eyes to see into what's actually happening in the spiritual realm, we'd see fires all over the place. Some of the fires we would see would be good fires. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire of God on you. You're on the altar of God, burning up for Him, blazing a trail. Others will see fires, but they're not a good fire necessarily. It's the fires of life. It's what's going on in your life right now that is burning you up, threatening to make you burnt toast. Am I the only human being that has ever left the broiler on in the oven with a bunch of toast and set off the fire alarm, made the dogs howl? I mean, the list goes on and on. But we've all done that. We've created something, and it's an accident, and it's terrible. It stinks the house up. You have to raise the windows. You have to air out because it is the wrong aroma. Now listen to this. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high. That's 90 feet. And 6 cubits wide. That's 9 feet. This massive gold idol. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is a hearken back to the Tower of Babel. Where in that case, the very same scenario, and it's a spirit behind this that drives men to believe that they can usurp and be bigger than God. And so they set up the Tower of Bible saying, we will ascend to heaven, we will ascend to God, and we will be like him, and we will be above him. Now, and we saw what happened there, right? Just to say that that tower fell, like one of those Instagram building destruction videos that I like watching. So this whole thing just came down. Now, we have another scenario, same plane, same area, and now another idol has gone up 90 feet high. He then summoned the satraps. Those are, those are overseers, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedita- dedication of the image he had set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so proud of his handiwork that he invited, and he didn't invite, he commanded that all of his officials that were scattered out through all the provinces, I mean, their reach was far and wide, and he brought them all in to stand before this idol. The question is, is that idol an image of Nebuchadnezzar, or was it an image of one of his gods? More than likely, it was one of his gods, one of his many gods that he worshiped. But he had a demand to make, and look what happens in verse 4. Or three. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Get the picture. They're all there before it, out in the desert. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. So the king hands down a decree. Verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. You have to understand this blazing furnace was a torture device. It was actually designed not to burn trash. It was designed to burn people. 
And it was a furnace, and it was a it was a, a an instrument of death, an instrument of destruction. They knew very well what he was talking about. Verse seven. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That also harkens back to the wilderness experience when they came out of Egypt with Moses leading and they decided, we're going to rush this process a little bit. See, in our flesh, we have a tendency to get ahead of God. We tend to think, I'm going to help God out. I know where we're going, but I think if I help, I can, I can move things along a little bit. Well, how's that working for you? So the situation here is they build a golden calf because we're not going to wait for God to come down off the mountain and bring more tablets and give us the commands. We're going to go ahead and we've got this here. We're going to set up our own idol. And here again now, they're before this golden image and they are commanded and decreed that they must drop and worship. And it says this, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down. Well, except a few. We'll see what happens. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Not the whole Jewish tribe, but three. Now, we're not going to see Daniel again in this story, and the question begs, you know, where, where did Daniel end up? We're going to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was probably on a mission because he was the second reigning in command just under Nebuchadnezzar. He had favor on his life, as all three did, all four, and he was probably on a mission, so he probably wasn't even in the vicinity when this happened, and he's left out of the story at this point. At this time, these astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Verse 9, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever, and that is a common greeting. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, an image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. He's like, duh, I issued that decree, I know. But what they're doing is they're backing him into a legal corner because his word was law. And they're saying, you said it, now they knew what they were about to present. See, they had to be a little bit jealous that these Jewish boys that were brought all the way from Jerusalem were suddenly in some level of authority and serving in the king's court. And here they were, lowly astrologers. So in that jealousy, a lot of flesh going on through this story, if you notice. Look what happens. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There they go. You've been, they've been set over the affairs. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I highlighted this just for effect, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. They're saying, see how opposite this is of your decree. They're, they're, they're trying to unequivocally get these guys killed. And they're trying to fire the king up so that he rolls into the biggest conniption fit you've ever seen. By the way, I didn't even know what conniption meant. I'm hoping it wasn't something bad, but I've said it all my life. My mom used to say that. Stop throwing a conniption fit kind of thing. You know what it means? It means a furious outburst. You know why I know that? Because a teenager Googled it between services and came and told me. So I learned a new word today, a new definition to an old word. So watch what happens. Nebuchadnezzar is going to fly into a conniption fit. I'm going to use that word all week. Look what happens. Verse 13, furious with rage. There it is. He's having a conniption moment. 
Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Verse 15. Now, he loves these guys. They serve him. They've walked together, and now he's going to give them another chance to correct their misguided ways. Look what happens. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, he's laying it all back out, pipe and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image. Now, there's a common question. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image, in a world where it seems like everybody's falling down, somebody's going to have to stand up. Somebody's going to have to stand up. Will it be you? Oh, we could talk about on the world scene, but what about where you work? When everybody's falling down to worship idolatry of our culture, are you willing to take a stand? What about in your school? Middle school, high school. It's easy to, to lump them in and go, oh, the peer pressure. Oh, they're like we didn't have any when we were growing up. Oh, you know, that, that, those, those young people in the culture and their phones and their, their social media. You know, it's so easy to get on them. And yet we find ourselves doing the same thing at our older ages in life and stages. It just looks different. And we disguise it much better because we've become good at hiding and when everybody else falls down, it's kind of easy to just take a seat. Maybe I'm, not on the, maybe I'm not on my face, but I'll just take a seat. Because if I was to stand up, that could mess with that deal that I'm trying to work. And that could really affect our, our bottom line. That could impact our product. And we do it all the time. In a world where people are falling, somebody's going to have to stand up. He says... If you are ready to fall down, worship the image I made very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Ooh, wow. We just went from cocky to way arrogant. I mean, just like off the charts. It reminds me of the guy. We were in Belfast a few weeks ago and we got to go to the Titanic Museum. Amazing experience. But I'm reminded of the, of the captain of the ship who said, not even God can sink this ship. Listen, I'll, I'm not going to double or triple dog dare God for anything. You know what I'm saying? Do not go there. And Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and his arrogance, not only does he set up and erect this idol, he now says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I just see the Lord ro rolling up his sleeves right now. I just, I, I get just, just kind of getting ready to throw down because something's about to happen. As he has now been challenged, the gauntlet has been thrown down and the issue, the decree has been issued now that if they don't fall down, that they will be killed. And look at their fearful, shy, cowardice response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we will fall down as soon as the music starts. No, look what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. See, here's the thing. When you have hope, joyful, confident expectation of a desired good, then when you have hope, you are secure in your position. 
Because if God has said something, then it's going to come to pass. That's why the disciples weren't afraid when Jesus was sleeping in their boat. Oh, wait, they were very afraid. They were terrified. But did they need to be? No, because Jesus was asleep in their boat. He was there. That boat wasn't going to sink. Let me tell you, if he is with you, God is with you in any way whatsoever, your boat's not going to sink, your car's not going to go off the road, the airplane's not going to fall from the sky if he's with you. Now, I'm going to clarify a little bit of that because it's easy to extrapolate something. Look at this. King, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Now, most people would never just write out and out and say, God's not able. We know he created Australia, right? He's able. He created Texas, right? He's able. But the question is this, is, is he willing? Do we believe he's willing to work on our behalf? Do we have that hope, that joyful, confident expectation? Is he willing? So look what he says. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us not from the fire, but from your majesty's hand. Do you see the little twist there? And then he says this, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar throws the gauntlet down before God. These three boys throw the gauntlet down before the king they had been serving faithfully because they were backed into a corner. And now they had a choice to make. Will we cave and continue to enjoy the spoils of being in the, in the, in the win, on the winning team? Babylon's killing everybody. So we get the bonus of that. We get the good life. We get to live in the king's palace, and serve the king, and we get all, everything your heart can desire in the flesh. Or are we going to be thrown into that torture device that we've seen other people thrown into, that furnace over there that's not burning trash? Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed as though he wasn't angry. He was trying to give them another chance. He was trying to say, look, all you have to do, stop, drop, and roll. All you got to do is hit the ground when the music starts. All you got to do is, is, is suck rug. Just get on the ground. Just get down. He's trying to help them. He's saying, I'm giving you a chance here, boys. I like you guys. And then look what happens. He was furious. He goes back into a condition fit. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his attitude changed. And look what happens. He's so angry, and in his flesh, he loses his mind. He ordered the furnace he did seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. He's like, I'm done. And he loses his mind. And in this fit of rage, and in his anger, he so amps up the heat. Look what happens. Verse 21. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Remember that toast I was talking about that probably no one's ever burned but me? Verse 22. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Whenever there is rage unchecked, anger unchecked in your life and mine, there will always be collateral damage. Somebody's going to get hurt. Road rage. People losing their mind over a parking spot or over a lane change or a slow driver. We all get frustrated on the road. Can I get an amen? I'm about to confess. I do. When you've driven in Nashville, when you've driven in Los Angeles, when you've driven, and then you live in Fredericksburg, you have to gear back a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a lot, and that keeps reminding me. Because I don't want to be the guy who runs over a chicken on Milam. I'm just saying. I don't want to be that guy. So they throw them in and they took them up because anger always has collateral and creates collateral damage. Verse 23, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Someone say, uh-oh. Oh, something's happening here. Something's going on. And they replied, certainly, your majesty. See, the king is seeing something in the flames. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll see types and shadows of what's to come. You'll see birds uh, representing demons, and you'll see mountains and giants representing opposition and obstacles, all kinds of types and shadows. This is a type and shadow of Jesus himself being seen in the fire. Look, I see four men walking around, unbound, unharmed. The fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know who Jesus was, didn't know what was happening here. All he knew is that it was supernatural. First of all, they're walking around in the fire. Can I just say something? God will not always rescue you out of the fire. He will not always divert your path so you don't go into the fire, but I can guarantee you this, and here is where my hope lies. He will be with you in the fire and through the fire. You have to know this. If you do not have a theology for suffering, you're going to have a very confused Christian life. Because let me tell you something. God will use anything that's thrown at us for your good and for the good of those around you and the good that you will contact with and connect with through life. There was a season in my life where I just, I couldn't hardly reconcile my mind that a good God would allow bad things to happen. And I had to have a theology of suffering because the suffering I saw in the world did not make sense to my mind. And I had to realize God had so many more higher and bigger purposes than my comfort and my convenience and my prosperity. So God allowed me, led me, ordained me to walk through some deserts. I don't know if you've ever been in the high desert of Southern California. We lived in Victorville, Apple Valley, Hesperia, that area of Southern California. It would get to 120 degrees in the summer in the high desert. 
It may not have been hell, but it was as hot as hell. It was like I rode a motorcycle at the time, and it was like riding through a blast furnace down Bear Valley Road, 120 degrees. People looking at me in their air-conditioned cars like, that guy's crazy. He's on a motorcycle. God will not always rescue you from the fire, but he will walk with you through the fire. That is hope. That's joyful, confident expectation of desired good, that if I'm in a fire right now, God's in it with me just as Jesus was in the boat with the disciples. And if he's in it with me, then there's a plan. And if there's a plan, then that means he's going to have something to say about the outcome of this. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego servants of the Most High, he calls Nebuchadnezzar, he calls out, and he says, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. They came out of the fire. You're going to come out of the fire. You're not in the fire alone. You're not left to yourself. There is hope, confident, joyful expectation. And look what happens. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. Guess what? For every step you take away from the cross, there'll be 12 people looking to cheer you on. If you want to walk away, there will be people to say, you walk, or they'll say, run, don't walk. There will always be somebody to cheer you on. And they're crowding around watching this. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. You need to understand something. All of us, in fact, if I was to say, man, do you ever feel like you've just been to hell and back? And a lot of people, the majority of people in this room would go, oh, let me tell you about my experience. Oh, let me tell you about my story. Oh, let me show you my scars. Oh, let me tell you what happened to my family. We all have stories where we would say, I've been to hell and back. Here's the question, though. I'm not going to question that because we've all been there, done that, and we have some T-shirts in the closet to prove it. But here's the thing. What do you smell like after you get back from hell? See, the smell that emanated off of them was not the smell or the residue of smoke and fire. But I have an idea, and I know some of the stuff some of you have been through. And you know my story, a lot of it, and you're going to know more as we go, as we continue on our journey together. But here's the thing. When you can say I've been to hell and back, but I don't smell like smoke because my Redeemer lives, because my God is a healer, because he cares about my wholeness, because he is working on me, because he is the healer, he is Jehovah Rapha in my life, and he has healed me. And when you can say I don't smell like smoke, all of us around you can say, oh, we agree. In fact, what you do smell like is you smell like the aroma of Christ. In the New Testament, we're told that we, are to, we carry in us, in our bodies, the aroma of Christ, the aroma of Jesus. Much like my granny, giving two rooms heads up, she's coming. Let me tell you something. When you have carry the aroma of Christ, people know you're coming. They may not know what that smell is, but they know it's different and it's good. Let me tell you something. When you carry the residue of hell and the smell of smoke and fire on you, people know 
Those that are in your orbit, no. So the question is, what do you smell like today? What do you smell like? And if you have to be honest and say, you know what, I'm not over my stuff. I mean, I'm like in it. Or I'm in the fire right now. I'm pretty sure I smell like fire. Let me just tell you something. There is great hope for you. Great hope for you. Great hope for you. Listen to this. We'll end with this. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He certainly changed his attitude. Amen? We've got shift that just happened. Who has set his angel, sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied. They trusted in him. Look at that highlight. And defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. This is the king deciding My goodness, they defied this order, but their God rescued them. And now he's giving praise to the Most High God. Now, I wanted to skip ahead one slide to to end this thing, making it real for real life. And here's what I want to extrapolate as we go. Here it is. God's favor is on his children. Listen, if you're a son or daughter of God, you've stepped over the line, you've given your heart to Christ, let me tell you, God's favor is on your life. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, His anger lasts but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. And that means the quality of life and the quantity of life. His favor is on your life. It was on Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, Belteshazzar. It was on them. It is on you as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. His favor is for life. So I say it like this. This is a Pastor Jayism. I'm not an Amorite. I'm not a Hittite. I'm not a Perizzite. I am a favorite. Amen? Are any favorites here in the room? That's not arrogance. It's agreement with the Word of God. That's not arrogance. It's just agreement. Here it is. We must stand when all others fall. A lot of folks are falling all around us. I look back on who graduated with me through the ministerial program in college and then subsequently in seminary, and I'm telling you, there's not a lot of us standing. There's not a lot of us that have, that have decided, I'm going to go the long haul. I'm going to play the long game. I'm 35 years into it, and I'm telling you, I'm young. I'm a young whippersnapper. Now, I've always had next-generation churches where I felt like the old guy. Man, in our church, I feel like a kid. So I'm like, we got years to go here. Y'all are an inspiration to me. I want to be like you when I grow up. Long time to go. So I'm in it for the long haul, the long game. We got to stand when others fall. God does not always rescue you out of the fire. He's with you in the fire in the fire, through the fire, and out the other side. Can I get an amen? Last thing, when we come out of the fires of our life, we should not smell like smoke. There should be no residue on our lives of the past if we're healed, if we're whole, and we're walking with him and giving it to him on a constant basis. So that might be where you are, and I want to end with this, and we'll close. It may be that today is where you say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it, but I smell, I've got residue on me. I smell like the hell that I went through. And the aroma that's coming off of my life is not, not good. In fact, it creates collateral damage. It, it impacts everybody around me because they smell it too. 
So here's the thing. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Hope has a face. Looks a lot like you for somebody else. But what about hope for you? Remember, he has a name. It's Jesus. Listen, this is going to sound so Sunday school and so simple that we miss it. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not true. I went through a period of my life where every day I had to forgive people who had betrayed me. People who had turned their back on me. And it put me and my family in peril. And I had to every day, sometimes dozens and sometimes dozens of times every day, forgive them by name with my mouth out loud. And for a very long time, I never felt like I forgave them. I was just saying it. But last week we talked about the power of our words and the scripture says you'll have whatever you say. And I found that over time, as I said it, spoke it, declared it, it shifted my thinking. It rewired my brain to one day I woke up not even realizing the switch had been flipped, but I actually felt nothing anymore. No anger, no um, need to be validated, no need to get them back, retribution and revenge. And it was because I declared it over and over and over, and you will have whatever you say, especially when it's in alignment with God's will and God's word. There's some of you that need to extend and begin to declare forgiveness and grace over the very people who crushed you. Sounds simple, but I'll say this. If it doesn't work the first time or the 100th time or the 1,000th time, keep doing it until it takes and as long as it takes. Can I get an amen? What do you smell like today? Hopefully you don't smell like my granny, but hopefully you don't smell like smoke either. Can we pray? You bow your heads. Father, we honor you. Thank you. Thank you for this amazing story of hope that though they still went into the fire, we have hope because you were in there with them. And we have further hope because when they came out, they didn't smell like smoke. <sighs> Father, I pray for the grace for all my friends and family here to begin to lean into hope, the hope that has a name, the name of Jesus. I pray for them today. Father, for anyone here who's never stepped over the line to go all in with Jesus and give their life to Christ and receive Christ as Savior and subsequently the Lord of their lives, I pray that today will be their first step on that journey. And for others, it'll be another step on the journey. But I pray for them and hold them up. We love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. As we close.